From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Claire Kim is a doctoral candidate in the program in History, Anthropology, and Science, Technology, and Society at MIT. She spent the 2018-19 academic year in residence at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study as a graduate student fellow and, when we talked, was nearing completion of her dissertation. Claire's work traces of the trajectory of mathematical thinking, and just as importantly, our mainstream thinking about mathematics, in the United States over the last 100-plus years. Although her dissertation is structured chronologically, she refers to her research as a cultural analysis in history, one that uncovers a surprising degree of back-and-forth between math as a discipline and more humanistic pursuits, something that continues to this day. While she's at it, she also tells a pretty good story about a lawsuit involving origami. Claire Kim, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thanks for having me here today. (laughs) In your work, you point out something that I suspect most people would recognize as true if they really stopped and thought about it, but it's not the kind of thing that we're in the habit of really stopping and thinking about. So the first thing I wanted to do was ask you to kind of bring that all the way into our consciousness. And the question is, how is the way we perceive what math is different from how we think about other kinds of knowledge. I know that was one thing in in reading your proposal at the Institute for Advanced Study where you talked about the way we think about what math is, we kind of hold it in a different place than we do a lot of the other kinds of knowledge that are in the world. Yeah, uh, there are several ways to answer that, right? There, Historically, even in the 19th centuries and even earlier, you hear many people most of them, a lot of them mathematicians, claiming that math, mathematics is the queen of the science. It's seen as part of science as being able to um, ascertain truth. But then on the other hand, all throughout the 19th, well, even preceding that, but also into the 20th and even the present today, along those notions of objectivity and truth that get associated with mathematics, you also see claims about mathematics is beautiful, right? Mathematics is elegant, and it's a creative art. So there is a way in which a lot of these descriptors surrounding mathematics um, as the field is developing really lie in this uneasy boundary between the humanistic, the scientific, um, the technical, the social. Mm -hmm. And mathematics in particular, it it seems to always operate at, at the edges of those boundaries. So... I took that as something very interesting uh, to actually analyze in itself Mm -hmm. and to use that uh, as a lens to understand how intellectual life itself is changing and how the ways in which, you know, institutions of higher education, particularly in the U.S., are consistently reorganizing 
right? Their disciplines um, mm-hmm. structurally, organizationally, but also how professionals, including not just mathematicians, but also social scientists, artists, and various kind, sorts of humanists are also in turn rethinking their own subject matter and just trying to think about what it is that they're doing in relation to the other. Mm-hmm. So your current research, which we talked about, it is kind of a, a different thing than what we do sometimes on the show in that you're working on your dissertation. So things are, there's moving parts, there's moving pieces, which I think is cool to talk to you at this point of kind of where, where you are um, at this moment as we're recording it. But if I'm right, you're focusing on the first half of the 20th century in particular in the U.S.? Or is, is I it, thought I was. Thought, and so this is where, yeah, if you want to really get a sense of how my project Yes, changed, absolutely. To briefly summarize what my, my dissertation project is about, at the moment, even the title is consistently changing, but at the moment, the title of the dissertation is The Subjects of Modernism, Mathematics, Aesthetics, and Values in 20th Century U.S. Intellectual Life. Okay. To frame what interests me uh, on an abstract level, I'm really interested in the question of what tools we think with, not just within our own field, but across other fields. How does drawing upon, you know, the language or vocabulary of mathematics and bringing it, incorporate it into artistic or architectural discourse, in turn actually impact how architects perceive what they think they should be doing with their field, the aspirations that they have for it. And also in turn, how does that change their practice and the way they represent their own subject matter to other people? I get at that by looking at a set of meanings that are circulating around mathematics all throughout the 20th century that are also in line with similar value uh, values that get associated with different fields, right? And one of those is abstraction, creativity, universalism, autonomy. And in the history of mathematics and even mathematicians themselves, uh, there's a tendency to narrativize the development of 20th century U.S. Partic- uh, 20th century U.S. mathematics as undergoing what they call a modernist transformation. And it's a, it's both a description, but it's also a claim. It's a normative claim that they make about what mathematics has become, and what it is, and what they do. And so, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, mathematics to just briefly grossly <laughs> summarize this is kind of coming off of these foundational crises that happen in the, um, in uh, in the field of mathematics mostly centered in the in in Europe and particularly in Germany but throughout world war 2 a lot of mathematicians are in turn emigrating to the US who bring that to bear uh, and american mathematicians at the turn of the 20th century themselves are at the same time thinking that they want to reconceptualize themselves as a profession. So traditionally, they had their role in the university setting had been more for education and service. And so they really wanted to make a shift more towards research, the production of knowledge, emphasis on that. And it happens to coincide with uh, transformations around how to conceptualize mathematics. So one of the figures who is seen as being very emblematic of this is uh, David Hilbert, this German mathematician who in 1899 publishes this text called The Foundations of Geometry, where he calls for a reconceptualization of mathematical concepts as being implicitly defined according to structures and axiomatic systems. So the implications of that is that geometric objects no longer have an empirical referent. They can operate in their own little world, Mm -hmm. and it's according to a set of rules um, defined by 
that that so a set of rules, uh, hence formalism being another descriptor that characterizes it. Um, and the tendency is to do it using symbolic notation. Well, I think, and I I think this is related to that. You told in one of your seminars at the institute, you kind of told. I, I thought it was a really good example of this idea of conceiving of math is not just or math is a discipline not just is this tool that we're using out in the world but is kind of this thing in its own space and you talked about a proof of one plus one equaling two and I think it was like a 360 page proof of oh, one that plus was, that was Alfred North Whitehead and Burton Russell who co-wrote this I use that actually to be emblematic of what mm-hmm. people say to describe what is what is really new and what is really modern about this new set of mathematics. And it's that symbolic notations, they don't necessarily have any empirical meaning that you can draw away from it. Mm-hmm. It, it operates in its own system. Mm-hmm. And it actually, the term that gets used eventually to describe this is that mathematics becomes known as the science of structures, like the abstractions of, upon abstractions. And so they're one example. David Hilbert is another. Uh, you can see it in the development of other fields. One particular one I find interesting is actually this mathematician at the University of Chicago in 1910 who actually appropriates David Hilbert's notion of axiomatic systems and uses that to, to actually describe a new field of mathematics general, general analysis where the study of axiomatic systems become a field of intrinsic mathematical interest in its own right. So it gets like this super introspective. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what gets characterized around it. Consequently, I think what tends to happen in how mathematicians and historians have described how mathematicians in the U.S. have developed is around notions of them being completely autonomous from what's going on across higher education. It's a claim about how mathematics has transformed into something that is very distinctly discipline-bound. And so no one else has any sort of engagement with it. It's, that's the extreme form of what one could take away from reading those kind of narrativizations. And what dissatisfied me was it wasn't that hard to look in the historical record yeah. to see, even though it's not dominant mathematical practice, but you do see a lot of efforts by mathematicians and also non-mathematicians alike to actually engage with those set of new tools and theories and understandings. Whether they do it right or not is not of interest to me. It's the fact that they do it and what happens with it um, I think is very helpful because it has significance, I think, in our contemporary moment where mathematics and the prevalence of formal systems across all fields in the university is especially pervasive. We can see it in the context, I think, today of digital humanities and a lot of the debates around what a computational and mathematical analysis of literary criticism would look like. I think you can see a lot of precursors to that by looking at it, by recovering the history of those set of exchanges. Uh, it's very hard to understand how that, why that may have happened if we rely too much on that narrative of um, discipline formation. Right. So it's like we've had this narrative kind of grow up as math is kind of this almost like this neutral arbiter of the universe kind of into and of itself when in in reality when you're looking back at the people who are actually formulating these things they they were they weren't on an island by themselves completely cut off and all these things are actually in conversation with each other absolutely 
this idea of this modernistic math movement that was especially prevalent and going on in the United States then, it wasn't the only kind of math being practiced in the world. And you, you talk some about what's happening in the United States compared to the math that was being practiced in, in China, in Japan. What was the difference, I guess, between those two? There's these two modes and two ways of thinking about what math is, and they're starting to come. They're starting to come into conversation with each other, and some some yeah. things happen as a result. So, so let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. There is also a tendency to talk about the mathematician in a very universalizing way, mm-hmm. a very abstract manner. And when we talk about the professionalization of mathematics, uh, I, I mean, people do recognize it was very dominantly male at the time, and in the U.S. though. At the turn of the 20th century, U.S. higher education is in the process of setting up international exchanges of students to actually come to the U.S. And what I did find fascinating about that was, right um, in that period, there's a lot of immigration restrictions on the Chinese and the Japanese in particular. International students are the exclusion to that role. And of all the international students that were coming in, I think the year was 1906, Chinese and Japanese students actually made up the majority of the international students, and a lot of them were actually majoring in mathematics in the U.S. That happens to coincide when there is also, in the U.S. textbook industry and also in U.S. publishing, a lot of interest in publishing translated materials regarding Japanese and Chinese mathematical texts. They're not necessarily contemporary. They're, these are texts that they've come across and are translating by Japanese mathematicians from the 18th, 17th century. And what I found so fascinating is actually analyzing the reception of that work uh, by the mathematicians in the U.S., who, as a result, put in a lot of efforts to make the claim that despite the linguistic, you know, the inscriptive practices, despite the different actual physical tools that they may use to work with mathematics, you can still make the claim that what they're doing is the same thing that will eventually lead to the modernist transformation that's happening in mathematics. So I recovered that history. And uh, one of the things that they do talk about, actually, is uh, there's a lot of invested interest in the abacus Mm -hmm. as a calculating device. Um, In in Japan, it's the sotoban, similar device. What I've been piecing together is a set of really interesting observations and claims that they make regarding how... Those mathematicians, what they're doing will eventually lead up to what the new mathematics is going to focus on. It's, of course, it's universal. It's all doing the part right. of the same practice. But they claim that because they're too reliant on these calculating physical tools with their hands, they wouldn't have been able to derive it using the mind and abstraction. And so hence they were, they don't use the word inferior, but they do say that they were always... Uh, it was kind of foolhardy. They were always going to fail in the get-go. And I found that interesting trying to read that against the context of American Orientalism, where Oriental as an actor's category at the century actually referred to people of East Asian descent, particularly mm-hmm. the Japanese and Chinese who were visiting. And so mm-hmm. um, it's more to bring up a set of interesting, something kind of paradoxical, so to speak, or contradictions, or just right. you know, point to an uneasy tension when right. you when you look closely at the details. Because it's it's like okay, we we this group of kind of U.S. mathematicians writ large. It's like okay, well, there's this other thing out there, but part of what we're doing in this modernist movement is mm-hmm. 
it's all one language, so we need to if right. we're going to make that case, there's this other thing that looks really different, but we're going to convince you that it's just part of this natural evolution to what we're what we're doing now. Yeah. And what became fascinating to me was actually coming across across actual dissertations where these some of these international students in order to get their doctoral degree, uh, this one case in 1903 at Stanford, I look at, he published a history of oriental mathematics, and that counted as mathematical work. Right. And it gets at a, a lot of, and part of that... As opposed to just like a, a history kind of project or something. Because I, yeah. I remember you made that point in your seminar, was he wasn't really doing any kind of mathematical work to have this accepted as a thesis of math. It was more just... Here's what has been done so far. Mm-hmm. And so he's he does a lot of work translating and trying... He does analyze it, but it is a historical argument that he makes. It's not a mathematical argument. Mm-hmm. And it was... I've actually still been struggling to find information regarding whether that there were issues with that with the committee, but he's not the only example I've come across. I've now come across six of those, uh, particularly in UC schools where they were also being accepted. Uh, but it's also, uh, I have a friend and colleague, Alma Steingart, who works on this actually, who's been interested in analyzing how mathematicians become particularly reinvested in the history of their field at this particular moment. So I see that as actually aligning with what she's been showing in her own work. I don't, I mean, and this is my term, I didn't see you use this anywhere, and I don't know if it's uh, uh, an accurate characterization, but it almost seemed like looking at it, that it was almost kind of um, a forced assimilation of a way of thinking onto an umbrella of kind of the... There's a lot of negotiation that's working, yeah, yeah. at work, and it becomes a question of what they say they can assimilate and what gets left out as a result. That's Mm -hmm. what I've been interested in uncovering. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are several documents that consequently um, following that continue to refer to these oriental mathematicians as actually not abstract enough. Mm -hmm. They're quants, they're calculators, right? And there have been different notions of that that we see today, right, with the model minority myth and all that other stuff. And it was was just very uh, fascinating to observe that in this context as well. Yeah. In addition to that, and you've mentioned a couple of these other areas as you've been talking, and it's the different chapters of um, the dissertation, in, in talking about where this modern conception of what math is, and we, we have this kind of narrative of this neutral arbiter, so to speak, that is kind of cut off from the other disciplines. But it, I know in your dissertation, you're looking at these other areas where what math is and how it took shape and how people were thinking about it, it wasn't independent from what else was going on in the culture, but was actually in conversation with it and and influenced by it. And I'm wondering if just if you can talk a little bit kind of in overview about at least at the time when I was looking at was those other three areas. um, Yeah, there are several cases and I can I can go through uh, and I can even end with where I'm going to hopefully end in the present. And so the dissertation is historically informed, but it's also a t- it's a kind of cultural analysis and cultural history. So it's not it happens to be chronological, but the organization of the dissertation at the moment is more synchronic and taxonomic. It's organized around these set of exchanges in which mathematicians are in in conversation and doing a set of these intellectual exchanges with a different kind of intellectual community, and I. Each of the chapters focuses on a moment of change, 
in U.S. higher education as well. So with the chapter on international students that I recover, I, I use that in the context of where the U.S. is also trying, uh, or U.S. higher education, uh, the emergence of the research university, right, at the turn of the 20th century. One of the other cases I look at is actually where this mathematician at Harvard University named G.D. Burkhoff, who himself also comes up with his own axiomatic system, becomes very interested in studying aesthetics and aesthetics, uh, the aesthetic experience. And he works to develop a, th a mathematical theory of aesthetic measure. What's so fascinating about that is architects really like it. And so as the Harvard Graduate School of Design is developing, they actually incorporate it for a time into their actual curricula mm -hmm. to train architects and designers on what, how they should be approaching the construction of buildings, how do they evaluate and adjudicate what counts as beautiful or not, or as elegant. In G.D. Burkhoff's mathematical theory, it emphasizes order, order over complexity in a way that actually maps onto the characteristic minimalism and things like that that we you know, see with other architectural practices like in the Bauhaus movement. So that's one case. Uh, another I look at is there's a lot of work to talk about how in the U.S., especially in the World War II, in an immediate post-World War II period and the Cold War, the institutional bifurcation between pure and applied mathematics. That happens um, right around World War II. Brown University and uh, New York University's Courant Institute are the first two to establish an actual applied mathematics department. And a lot of emphasis on that work has been in the context of the Cold War University, um, the military-industrial complex. and But there's another set of changes that are happening in that period where progressive liberal arts institutions are also trying to grapple their way through. And so another example I look at, um, specifically in the late 1940s and early 1950s, is at a small liberal arts college called Black Mountain College. Uh, that was it's close. It was close to Asheville, North Carolina, and is today actually has a very strong legacy for helping cultivate particular artistic practices. I mean, so many people went through there. Uh, several members of the Bauhaus movement were actually instructors there. You also had Marcia Cunningham. There's all these people where you think, wow, you, you hear about their names, right? And, right? and another figure who came there was Max Dane, who is a mathematician from Germany. He's considered as having a formative influence on the development of topology as a field in its own right. Mm -hmm. And he actually... Uh, so he's there teaching and ends up developing two courses, uh, one called Geometry for Artists, one called Topology for Artists. So in that chapter, I analyze what is the work that goes into doing that? Is it any different? I'm still actually working my way through that chapter, but he is seen as a, he has been credited by several artists who took his classes as actually affecting the way they approach creative production. Another this is actually what's new that you didn't hear in the presentation. As I go through each of these chapters, right, each of these different intellectuals are also drawing, they're coming from a tradition of modernism that gets ascribed to them as well, that aren't necessarily in conversation, but where the same values are actually at stake. What does it mean to be creative? What does it mean to be abstract? And I end in the present actually in the context of the neoliberal university, mm -hmm. right, this impulse to make property out of everything, looking at the case of mathematics, can you make property of, out of something so abstract? 
there's a lot of work being done in that in my in, in the field regarding algorithms and patents. Mm. But the case that I ended up looking at is actually around copyright dispute. And it's around the field of mathematical origami, which develops, uh, it begins to develop in the 1970s, both as a field of mathematical research in its own right, but also as actually a, a, way, a method of design. So these professional origami designers pursue this new method, uh, mathematical origami and computational origami field. What it means is that, or what's happening in mathematical origami is that some of these mathematicians, especially in the 70s and 80s, begin to mathematize the way that you can conceptualize paper folding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we think about you know, a crane that you see, that's around, I think, something like 13 folds. But with the tools of mathematical origami, they're able to produce these new origami models that are on the order of 300 to 500 folds very hard to do and all of it is grounded around the materiality of the paper but they axiomatize how what kinds of they define and um, what folds you can do with it mm-hmm. and it becomes for them a starting point from which to pr- create new origami forms um, so it really changes the way for this particular group how origami is conceptualized it's no longer motivated as this trial by error, hands focus, but it's motivated by a geometrical pursuit and a formalistic one. What's also great is um, a couple of mathematicians. They created a set of ac- uh, they created a set of axioms around it. And uh, one mathematician I look at, his name is uh, or this rather computational origami designer, his name is Robert Lang. He proved that the set was complete for the axioms for what you can define around those folds. As a result of those transformations. Maybe you've seen it, but when you look at origami instructions, you see these like right. diagrams and folds. So you have to show it on basically a flat surface when you start them. Mm-hmm. Like this, okay, this is how it's right. going to become the thing when you fold it. Right. right. And so some of these mathematicians um, actually come up with a new type of diagram, which is similar, but it's it's so complex, right? Mm-hmm. And they call them crease patterns. And the crease patterns are these diagrammatic representations. They're also labeled as proof certificates. Of the, of the fact that you can actually produce some of these origami models. And most of these models, if you ever Google it, it's very it's a lot of fun. It's super hard to do also by hand. It takes a lot of... <laughs> it, you still require a lot of hands-on yeah, knowledge in order right. to do it. Um, but it is very realistic. They, most of the models tend to be characterized by a form of extreme realism. And bugs were seen as actually the problem that they needed to work with. So in the 90s, it was for some of these uh, origami designers that they refer to it as the bug wars. Who could produce the more ever realistic and complicated right. one? So Robert Lang, um, his background is in applied physics and uh, from Caltech. And he worked as a research scientist um, for a time before deciding to pursue uh, computational origami as a full-time career. And he, uh, his, I think his official profession or how he identifies himself as an origami consultant or something like that. It's a cool job title. Yeah. <laughs> he circulates his final folded-up origami forms and his crease patterns in various settings, uh, which include professional research meetings that have been organized specifically around mathematical origami but also at art museums or science museums so i think in 2011 he exhibited six of them at at moma Mm -hmm. in new york city around around that time there was a conceptual artist her name is sarah morris she's a 
New York based artist and she she is very famous in the high art world and she is she trained under Jeff Koons for a little while as well she is known mostly for her media work and paintings her subject matter is tends to be more abstract and she emphasizes she maintain that's that tends to be what characterizes her practice as a way to do some form of critique on something else right so one of the ones is around a series of pieces regarding the 2008 Beijing Olympics that she decided to pursue as part of that project she created a series of oil-based paintings called the origami series where she reproduced a lot of the crease patterns that happened to be of uh, Robert Lang's original design. He came across that. I think he was notified by another origami designer who had just happened to see it and and then sued her for copyright infringement. And it, the case is interesting. So, spoiler alert, they, they actually settled in private. There was no legal constitutional case but what is interesting is to analyze the defense that the the defense of both sides and what they both do is actually rely on these discourses of creativity that actually are in contention with each other but when you analyze their uh, how they're talking about what they're doing is creative you can actually very clearly see how they're drawing upon these historical understandings that have developed throughout the course of the 20th century that have been uneasily in exchange with each other that then are actually in, um, are being confronted and brought to bear. Mm-hmm. She, so he claimed copyright infringement. She, her, for her main defense, she claimed fair use. So the question becomes, can you, what, what is a crease pattern? And she argued that crease patterns, by his definition, because they're proof certificates, they're, they're formal steps and directions, she has the right in order to appropriate it for her own work. Keep in mind, her work as an artist, especially as someone who has uh, worked for Jeff Koons, specifically relies on appropriation as a critical technique in artistic practice. So it becomes like, who who should be defended? I, I don't make a claim about who's right. in the right or wrong. It's more to understand why well, it's possible and if it's, for them to do that. And if it's a proof of this thing that just is, mm-hmm. could you really... I'm sure part of the argument is, could you really own that as a person if it's just describing a reality, basically? Right. And uh, so when it comes to fair use in in U.S. intellectual property legal court cases, there's normally a fourfold test that they apply, Um, one of them being the nature of the work, uh, the substantial similarity, forgetting the fourth, third one, but the fourth one has to do with affecting livelihood. So what was interesting is, he, Robert Lang made the claim that her work actually infringed upon his livelihood. Her paintings sell on, they sell at places like the Venice Biennale for thousands of dollars. And his crease patterns, he has sold them, but from what I, I can tell, it's always never been more than a thousand. I might be wrong on that, but it's also where he sells them has never been in the same set of community or world, right. so to speak, but it, it, it does bleed uneasily. But part of what he does in order to support his, uh, support that, it I, I mean, his defense relies on notions of both artistic and mathematical art authorship, right? The fact that he can do that together. And 
it seemed very likely at the time that she was going to lose, or for whatever reason she was going to lose, so she ended up settling mm -hmm. with him. But I analyzed that case particularly because it's, I think, very indicative of where higher education is today and mm -hmm. thinking about what does it mean to be an U.S. intellectual, not just within the American Academy. He, he leaves it, but he still maintains actually a, um, he still maintains a strong relationship to academia. He's still uh, the editor for a engineering research journal, mm -hmm. even though he is also pursuing origami design full, mm -hmm. um, full time. So you've, you've kind of taken us on this journey where we're able to see the ways in which math isn't just kind of this antiseptic exercise in rationality. It, it's in a way that we often, I think, imagine it to be, like a, kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of, well, it's just this thing out there that's true and it's different in, the, in this way maybe from other kinds of knowledge. Why, why is that understanding of that of what it actually is. Why is that so important? What do you hope to accomplish with your, with your dissertation by really digging into all these ways that math has been touched by and influences other, other realms of knowledge? Several things, but the main thing I will say is even liberal arts institutions and colleges are actually making the move to instill a computational literacy requirement in their curriculum. You also see mathematics courses being pushed with renewed emphasis in certain liberal arts curricula as well. There's been a lot of fighting about that. But then you see the prevalence of the emergence of the digital humanities, but then in the context of architectural design, it's also a heavy reliance on formalization, on, on algorithms with a mathematical basis to design and solve problems. I think there is a tendency to think that is a very natural thing to do. Of course mathematics is going to be able to pervade all that. And I think that speaks to an asymmetry, actually, about how we conceptualize different fields. And so by recovering this history, I actually want to show that, no, there is contingency. We can't actually make sense of it without taking this into account. And because if we do, then what is the humanities? What is the arts, right. you know? Well, our, our, our food is arriving, so I will say, Claire Kim, thank you so much for, for talking to us about all this. It was really interesting. No, anytime. Yeah. Thank you for letting me just grapple my way through. As you can tell, I'm still thinking well, I, about I, this. I think it's great for, yeah. for people, too, who maybe aren't as familiar with just even the process of writing a dissertation or how that yes. works. Like It is kind of a living, breathing thing as you're going through and, and working on it. So I think that's... That's cool that, that people can hear that. Oh, great. So, <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. With the Sign of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>